Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Are you old enough to remember a time when it was hard to find a nice pair of yoga pants? Maybe not. Before the launch of Lululemon in the late 1990s, people used to wear old ratty sweats to practice upward-facing dog. We all know what happened next. The industry exploded, and today Lululemon, Nike, and other top players make billions of dollars a year on activewear. But while there's certainly plenty of gear out there for those of us who spend time running or doing yoga, it's often still hard to find the perfect tennis skirt. Therein lies the next big opportunity in activewear. Some brands like Roan and Palm Society are making new products for sports such as golf and tennis, which were already big but saw a surge in popularity during the pandemic. Others are finding opportunities in still niche sports that aren't yet associated with any of the major activewear giants. BOF correspondents Javi Lieber and Daniel Yaw Miller spoke with brands, retailers, and sports industry experts to identify where they see activewear going next. Javi and Dan, thanks so much for being here. So to start, tell me how you got thinking about this topic and what made you pursue this story. It started out this past winter when I had been seeing just an explosion of fashion brands making ski products. Ski wear has always been big. You know, you have Montclair and you have the North Face making products for skiers. And I know ski is always considered the sport for the wealthy. This past winter had just seen an absolute explosion in ski wear collaborations. There was Balmain making ski wear and Prada teamed up with Aspen Skiing Company, which owns a few Colorado ski resorts. And Jill Sander and also Louis Vuitton released a ski wear collection. And there was also just an insane amount of ski activations in Aspen and, you know, in the Swiss Alps. It just seemed like ski was really just super hot this season. Um, And I had seen a press release that in the U.S., the ski industry saw a record 61 million visits, even though there wasn't really a whole lot of snow in the U.S. this year. So that just made me think about how skiing has really picked up and it seems like it's a really growing sport. And then the other thing that I kept hearing about And if you live in the U.S., it's really hard to avoid hearing about pickleball. It is everywhere. It had this huge explosion during the pandemic. People really love the sport because there's social distancing and it was less endurance and so on and so on. And then a few weeks ago, I had gotten pitches from a few brands who were making product for pickleball. And I had brought that idea to a pitch meeting and we had sort of discussed how it seems like there are specific sports categories like soccer, 
football, yoga, obviously running where there are huge activewear brands and they really just like crush it when it comes to those sports. But there are all these other niche growing sports that are picking up more players, you know, especially in Europe and the US. And it seems like there's a really, really big opportunity to sort of be capitalizing on these niche categories that don't really have a big player yet. And I know Dan and Kathleen Chen at Business of Fashion have done this really excellent case study a few weeks ago about brands like Gymshark, which had really focused on like high intensity gym training. And it seems like instead of focusing on sportswear, just as a big category, if you go niche and focus on like a very specific customer base with a very specific niche following, then that perhaps might be a better way to crack activewear as opposed to, you know, selling everything for the masses. And then you're going head to head with Lululemon and Nike. Yeah. So Dan, tell us a little bit about Gymshark in particular and their strategy, and then maybe break down what you all ended up doing with this story to move the conversation forward. Gymshark is a really interesting case study because they, like Javi touched on, really did well in identifying a gap in the market where gym goers and strength trainers initially in the UK were pretty much going to the big activewear companies, the established brands, looking for their gym gear. And there wasn't really anyone directing their either marketing or products, especially towards that community. And I think what Gymshark really did well was getting to the gyms, getting to the gym goers either on university campus in the UK or kind of in the early days of Facebook marketing, getting into those gym-loving groups and really letting that community know that there was a brand that was there servicing their exact needs, sharing their same memes, liking their same jokes, all because they were part of that really tapped in, really engaged gym-loving community. And the products were simple, like very identifiable logo and kind of affordable prices compared to some of the more established activewear companies. So that really helped to embed them in that community. And as we've seen, they've reaped the rewards of that ever since with a very high valuation and investment down the line. And then with this story here, we kind of took that forward and wanted to look at what sports and what categories had the potential to become the next big category that brands were looking to service. And Harvey earlier touched on pickleball and skiing. And another two we looked at were rugby and boxing. And rugby is a really interesting one because traditionally very popular in the UK and Australia, it's now very much a popular sport or growing sport in the US, which actually has the highest number of rugby fans in the world. And as well as boxing, which has had a revival thanks to popularity on YouTube because of creators like Jake Paul or KSI have kind of committed to these professional boxing careers. And that's kind of helped shake up interest in the sport and resulted in kind of a boost to that category in terms of apparel and equipment. And that's quite an interesting one that we're tracking because we've seen a lot more products stocked and a lot of brands getting into that space. So those are the kind of things we're looking at, which gave those sports potential to become the next big activewear category. So we're going to kind of walk through each of these sports and talk about the players who are making moves in these categories and who's winning, who's losing, what the opportunity is. But I wanted to talk broadly about the activewear market probably about five or 10 years ago. And Javi, I know you've covered this closely as well. There were tons of challengers to essentially to Lululemon, which was the first Nike as has kind of come in and, and become a big competitor as well, especially in the US. And I'd say, I'd say in Europe too, but and probably globally, when you really think of activewear, in particular for women, Nike and Lululemon own the market. 
Under Armour is gaining traction, but I'd say that's more on the men's side. And there were all these challengers to Nike and Lululemon that came out probably about 10 years ago, and some have done pretty well. Others have failed. And essentially what it comes down to is that it doesn't matter if you think Lululemon is uncool. It doesn't matter if it's not perfect style. The performance of the product is great for whether you're running errands or you're actually running. And so it sort of becomes the default. I know for myself as an active person who works out like five or six times a week and runs and does a yoga, a bunch of different strength training, I don't love the way Lululemon looks, but I just default to it because it fits well and the performance is good. The fabrics are really nice, that sort of thing. So how do these companies get to a size where they can compete? Because if you look at something like a Nike, they have managed to infiltrate a lot of different niche sports. A notable one is skateboarding where they didn't have success and then they went back and re-engineered their strategy and have been super successful in skateboarding. So that's just one example. But what is the financial opportunity in terms of the size of the market growth and how do these brands compete against the bigger players that just have more research and development, more distribution, et cetera? The activewear market is enormous. Like you said, Lululemon and Nike are really huge everywhere and they really focus on these niche sports categories. But over the years, there have been brands that have sort of like come and went. I remember back in like 2014, I was writing every, it felt like every week there was a new big brand, you know, Yoga Smoga, which is actually not even around anymore, or Beyond Yoga, which was actually acquired by Levi Strauss. So I think that the way that these smaller activewear brands have been able to compete is by focusing on more specific categories. And that is sort of how they nip at Nike or nip at Lululemon. Obviously, Lululemon focused on yoga, but it expanded. And then other brands saw an opportunity to either focus on a less popular sport or maybe chose to focus on a different aesthetic. I guess, you know, one brand that I'm thinking of in particular, when I'm thinking aesthetic, is the brand Aloe Yoga. So they are an upstart. They have a lot of celebrities who wear their clothing. The apparel is very good. And it just... From what I've heard from people who shop there, they feel it's like a little bit more cooler than Lululemon. I don't really know if that's true. I own a little bit of both. But the way that these brands are able to compete is that they go niche and they focus a little bit more on communities, which is what a lot of the brands that we'd focus on in our story do. Got it. So let's go through each of these sports that you all decided to focus on and talk about why they are compelling. And I do want to start with pickleball because I'm American. I live in Los Angeles and every day on the morning news or every week on the morning news, there's some little segment about how there aren't enough pickleball courts dedicated to the sport in Los Angeles and people want them really badly. They want them to be different from tennis courts, blah, blah, blah. It's very interesting. And in Europe, there are other paddleball sports that have become big. So can you all explain to me what pickleball is and why they need specific clothes, which brands are making specific clothes for players? I had never heard of the sport up until the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, like I said, you could turn around and it is everywhere. Pickleball was actually invented in the 1960s by a few middle-aged men living in the Pacific Northwest. It is 
basically like a cross of tennis, badminton, and ping pong. Historically, it has attracted a older demographic because the court is smaller and it also requires less endurance. Like you're not running around as much as you are with tennis. And also the rack and the ball are different. I personally don't play it, but I have a lot of friends and family who do. And they're all these really funny, like kitschy puns. Like there's dink and the area is called like the kitchen. It's a really, really kitschy sport. And then for a lot of reasons, like social distancing and hanging out with pods and people wanting to be active during the pandemic, the sport just exploded. So according to the Sports and Fitness Industry Association, which tracks fitness activity in the U.S., so the SFIA is what we call it. Uh, So the Sports and Fitness Industry Association had tracked that pickleball players are now 4.8 million as opposed to 3.5 million in 2019. And I have been noticing just tons of pickleball products on the market now. There are 267% more pickleball products online now versus a year ago. So you have everyone from K-Swiss to Francis Valentine to Anthropology making pickleball rackets. And then there's also pickleball skirts, pickleball tank tops, pickleball shoes. So when I had interviewed some brands about this, I was like pretty blunt. I was like, why do I need a special pickleball skirt? can I just wear a tennis skirt? And what they had told me specifically, I had interviewed this woman, her name is Aubrey Steele, and she launched this pickleball brand called Chavile. It's a brand for what she calls picklers. And she said like the pickleball player is really culty. They're obsessed with the sport and they don't want to wear tennis clothes. They want to wear pickleball clothes. And she said that as this sport has grown in the US, it's now a professional sport and they have local tournaments and actually now national tournaments. So this is becoming a professional sport and people are taking it seriously. So they're actually buying their own pickleball clothes. And I also interviewed Fila, the sportswear company, and they had said, maybe you don't necessarily need a different type of pickleball tank top or skirt, but you absolutely need a special type of a sneaker. And the way that the Fila executive that I interviewed, Lauren Mallon, she is the director of marketing and strategic partnerships at Fila for tennis and pickleball. She said that with the sport, you're really on your toes a lot because the area is smaller. And when they were doing product research, they had found that a lot of the sneakers that their pickleball players were wearing were really, really worn out, like on the toes and not necessarily on the sole. So they developed special pickleball sneakers that operate differently than tennis shoes. And I had found that Nike and Asics were doing exactly the same. So it really seems like there's this growing sport. It's really fun. It's attracting a lot of younger players, even though, as I mentioned, historically, it has an older demographic. And there are courts, like you said, popping up all over the country. And it's a little bit similar to paddle, which is a squash-like racket game that is really popular in South America and the Middle East and is now just exploding in England and in Italy and is also played by a lot of celebrities like David Beckham. So, you know, it just seems like these alternative tennis games are becoming really, really popular. And one thing that I think is important to note, and I'll just end on this, is that these sports are picking up at private clubs, right? So you have like tennis clubs and health clubs where people are playing a lot of paddle and tennis. So these brands are catering their products for the private club member who is really gear inclined, right? So if you become really, really intense or you become really serious about your pickleball game, then you're going to want to look really good at the tennis club to play pickleball. So that is the thought process. And from some of the pickleball players that I had spoken to, they were like, oh, absolutely. Like, it's all about the gear. We'll be right back. 
Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. When I first started writing BOF, it was out of pure passion for this industry and with an eye to how the disruptive forces of digitization, globalization, and consumer shifts would change the way fashion works. 15 years later, we are well on our way to helping to define the fashion business of the future. As I travel the world, some of you ask me, what's the best way to support BOF as we continue to act as your guide during these turbulent times? The best way to support BOF is to support our journalism by joining BOF Professional, the largest community of fashion professionals in the world. A BOF professional membership gives you access to our agenda-setting insights and analysis, which you won't find anywhere else, plus the opportunity to learn from our talented team of correspondents and editors, as well as our wider network of the fashion industry's leading creatives, thinkers, and futurists. Follow the link in the episode notes to learn more. Let's jump into rugby, which to me feels very much like a UK Australian sport. Rugby shirts are a fashion thing, but it's never felt like to me a big US thing. But what you all found is that it's actually picked up quite a bit in the US and has a lot of fans here, right, Dan? Yeah, it's an interesting one, rugby, because it's really gaining traction in the US. Like I said before, around 45 million fans, according to World Rugby. And this is only going to increase as USA Rugby invests more and more in the sport ahead of the 2028 Olympics in LA, which will feature a rugby competition, which the US will take part in. And then again, the upcoming Men's and Women's World Cups, which will be held in the US in 2031 and 2033. And I don't think we should underestimate the impact that a World Cup can have on really elevating the profile and popularity of the sport in a country. I think we saw the same thing with rugby in Asia when Japan hosted the previous World Cup. And really boosted the appeal of rugby, not just in Japan, but across Asia. There's a niche sport that actually has quite a big presence in fashion. In the last year, we've seen brands like Shakamu's and big streetwear brands like Palace, Supreme and Kith releasing rugby-inspired shirts, which a lot of them either have completely sold out or are reselling for quite significant prices on StockX, for example. And it all feeds into that kind of popularity of the preppy menswear look with the rugby shirts. But Like I said, the popularity of rugby is really having an impact on rugby clothing too. I had spoke with Jack Carlson, who founded a brand called Rowing Blazers, which is the official 
formal wear clothing partner of the USA rugby teams. And he said rugby sales have been significantly up since the pandemic. And the retailer Sports Direct has also said it stopped more than 10% rugby gear this year compared to last. So it's quite a significant uptick. So let's jump into boxing next. This one is a little more surprising. All these other sports are outdoor sports that are socially distanced. Whereas boxing, even if you're not sparring with a partner, you usually have a trainer who you're up close with, who you do spar with. And boxing usually happens indoors. So curious to know how that became a big thing during the pandemic and what brands are doing to cater to that customer specifically. Boxing is really interesting one because we've really seen it explode in popularity as the pandemic has begun to recede because people were able to do it outside. And also it was really pushed along with the rise of these kind of cult workout gyms that offer hit classes and boxing related workouts. For example, One Rebel, which is based in the UK and has gyms in the UK, Australia, Saudi Arabia and Israel. And it sells technical boxing gear like gloves and wraps, for example, alongside its usual kind of athleisure apparel side of the business. We've also seen some interesting activewear collaborations. For example, Free People's activewear line, FP Movement, released a boxing collaboration with a traditional boxing brand called Everlast, which kind of include an interesting brand of like very fashionable technical equipment, for example, like bright pink boxing gloves, but also a kind of boxing-inspired gown as if you're walking into the ring, which obviously the amateur boxer you or me won't be wearing. So it's an interesting one where you see a kind of twist on technical boxing gear, but made for a fashion consumer. Interesting. So Javi, let's talk skiing again. You mentioned it at the beginning, but I find this one in particular fascinating because of the fact that A, luxury brands have always had this fancy ski gear. You go to a nice resort, you see someone in head to toe Chanel, what have you. But does this also kind of connect to the general appetite and acceleration of the resort wear market? So just like vacation clothes, whether it's warm or hot? Absolutely. When I had been speaking to retailers who are selling ski wear, all of them had told me that ski wear has just exploded last winter. So it matches fashion. Sales of men's ski wear were up 30%. Farfetch has stocked 190% more ski wear this past year. At Net-A-Porter, also, they're just seeing a huge appetite for ski wear. And it's worth noting that people are obviously buying puffer jackets and bodysuits and so on, but they're also buying wool jumpsuits and turtlenecks and loungewear, which they are absolutely buying for a pre-ski, right? So they are buying for the slopes, but they're also buying for a really nice ski wear holiday in France or in the Swiss Alps or in Aspen and so on. So it absolutely is correlated to the rise of a vacation wardrobe and wealthy shoppers wanting to invest more in their wardrobe. I think that's how you see it reflected in luxury brands. So, you know, I'm thinking about the Celine ski goggles that were selling really well this past winter or branded Balmain skis or, you know, a Prada snowboard. Customers want to be buying these big statement pieces for the slopes. I mean, you can't talk about the rise of ski wear without thinking about social media. And I had mentioned before that this past winter had seen a record number of ski visits in the US, 61 million visits, even in a year where there was not a lot of snow. And then also in popular ski destinations like Switzerland, ski resort passes were up 37%. And a lot of these ski destinations are attracting first-time skiers. And obviously, a lot of these skiers are interested in the sport, but also it's about looking good on your Instagram, right? So one of the brands that I had interviewed for this story 
Fusalp. They are a heritage skewer brand and they got an investment from the Chanel heir, David Wertheimer. And they are known for ski products, but they are also expanding their offering to be making more products that you can actually wear out in the city. So it's become a whole look. I think there's probably also a little bit of a flex when you are able to have like a full ski lifestyle, because I think it definitely connotates a certain level of status. But more than that, it's about, you know, looking really good on your vacation and being able to take pictures about it and post on Instagram. I remember an anecdote about the Montclair store in Ball Harbor in Miami, Florida, being one of their best performing stores. So it's interesting that it is a year-round thing and connotes a certain lifestyle on top of being something that you actually use when you're doing an exercise. Yeah, it's really wild. I mean, I think about the type of sales that Montclair, even like a brand like Canada Goose does in like the warmer states where they absolutely do not need a coat or winter type of apparel for, I don't know, 50 degrees, 60 degrees, but it's absolutely about the type of statement they're able to make with the product. And I don't know, like I, you know, I did a lot of research looking at the newer ski products and some of them are really, really cool. I mean, if I had endless amounts of budget, like I would love to buy some of this stuff to wear when I go out in the snow. We talked about how these upstart brands can fill a niche and really compete in one category. But a lot of these brands are backed by venture capital or private equity or what have you. And want to become the next Nike or the next Lululemon. What do you all see as the opportunity here? Do you think it's like, let's get to $200 million a year and we serve a very particular market? Or is it one or two of these players has an opportunity to become the next Nike or the next Lululemon? I I think they're both great examples because they've started in one category and spent in Nike, probably 30 years becoming the authority and running in Lululemon, 20 years and becoming the authority in yoga. And they're sort of unassailable now. Are any of these players, do you think they have an opportunity to break out of the niche that they've filled and become a real competitor with the other sportswear giants? Absolutely. When you think about some of these smaller companies and you compare them to Lululemon or Nike, of course, it just feels like a Herculean task. Like really nobody can compete with someone like that if that's the way that you're thinking about it. But in terms of appetite for the market, I cannot overstate how much appetite there is. The global sportswear market was worth $384 billion in 2021, according to McKinsey. And it is estimated to be growing at a rate of 8 to 10%. So there's a lot of people shopping for these types of products, everything from ski wear to running to yoga to rugby and so on. There's a lot of interest in sports and in people wanting to buy product for the sport. So the appetite is enormous. In regards to competing, I definitely don't think that every one of these companies are going to become the next Nike or the next Lululemon, but there is opportunity to quote unquote, be a challenger brand or to sort of be different and disrupt You had started off by saying that you don't actually love Lululemon, but you sort of default to it. But what if you did find a brand that you absolutely loved that makes tennis clothes? You know, I'm thinking about how a lot of the ski products that I had looked at were extremely highly priced. Not everybody can afford a Montclair jacket or a Louis Vuitton ski wear collab. But, you know, then there's a startup like Half Days, which is a ski wear company, and they are priced much lower. Or you have the direct-to-consumer brand Italic, which makes ski accessories and apparel at a much lower price point as well. So there are ways that you can 
come in and have a differentiated product or price point or marketing message and really be able to make noise and differentiate yourself. Dan, back to those challenger brands and that big case study the retail team did. What does something like a Gymshark do differently than a lot of these niche players to get to a point of mass adoption or what have you? I think companies like Gymshark are so successful at creating a product that's tailored to a specific need. I think they're very good at going out and listening to people in their communities. And I think a lot of the time it's a case where the founder of these companies, it was the same with Voria, activewear company from California, where the founder was from a community where people lived very active outdoor lifestyles, either in the yoga or surfing communities, and was able to listen to the needs of the community, partly because he was part of that community and realized that there wasn't really a brand servicing that community. There was a gap in the market. And beyond that, I think it's the presence of the brand in building a community. And I think that's a big buzzword at the moment, community. But these disruptive brands, for example, Gymshark, Vori, even smaller brands like District Vision are so good at identifying their community and putting themselves physically in those spaces at first to kind of build up that cult following that can take the brand to the next level where it's able to get either funding or move on to the next level of scaling up. And being present in the community can be anything from what the running company on do where, where they kind of take their product, take their shoes to small niche running groups all around the world and either partner with a fashionable retailer and say, come down, try our product and become part of the brand's world. It's both a product and servicing a group of people who feel underrepresented that makes these brands stand out and become so successful. Got it. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. It was so fun to have two people on this week. I really appreciate you taking the time and congrats on the story. I encourage everyone to check it out on businessoffashion.com. And thank you so much again. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to The Debrief, produced and edited by Emma Clark, Kate Barton, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio. I'm Lauren Sherman, and I'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Thanks so much for joining us, and be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can join BOF Professional today with an exclusive 25% discount on an annual membership covering key industry topics from sustainability to technology to marketing with access to our case studies, live events, and iOS app. To get this special offer and benefit from 25% off of a membership, head to the link in the episode show notes or enter the coupon code DEEPBRIEF at checkout. Visit businessoffashion.com slash memberships. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.